Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5000. Enjoy! This week's episode of Beyond Reason is brought to you by Nodakian Studios. If you want a piece of fine pottery or a painting to die for, check out Nodakian Studios at etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Nodakian Studio. Welcome to Beyond Reason. Show for those who dare to have an open mind. Now here's your host, Justin Cancellari. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to a brand new Beyond Reason, the show for those who dare to have an open mind. I am your host, Justin Cancellari, and tonight I've got an amazing topic for you guys. I'm going to be bringing on Nick Redfern to talk about his book, Paranormal Parasites, The Voracious Appetites of Soul-Sucking Supernatural Entities. Nick is the author of more than 30 books on UFOs, Bigfoot, and cryptozoology, including Nessie, Shapeshifters, and Chupacabra Road Trip. He appeared on more than 70 television shows, including Sci-Fi Channel's Proof Positive, The History Channel's Ancient Aliens, and MSNBC's Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Uh, he lives in Dallas, Texas. He's been on numerous podcasts, including this one, and I'm so happy to have him back. Nick, welcome back to Beyond Reason. Yeah, well, thanks, Justin. Now, we've got you on to talk about the new book, Paranormal Parasites. So before uh-huh. we get going, I wanted to have you tell everybody how you got started on this book. Well, I guess it's like a a lot of books that I write. You know, you get a lot of feedback from people who've read previous books or articles or just want to share information in the hope that, you know, you can kind of help them with a few answers to this or to that. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically, you know, the what I do, I guess. You know, I just sort of... um, sort of, you know, get the accounts and so on and then speak to the witnesses and um, and and try and put together, you know, a, a scenario or the data that they've they provided me with. But what I found um, over certainly about the last two or three years, there's more and more cases where people have approached me where they've seen supernatural beings, for want of a better term, like, for example, the black-eyed children, shadow people, men in black, where there's this sort of uh, connecting thread going through all the cases. And that connecting thread is that when people have seen these entities, they felt almost immediately like weak, 
and tired and literally as if their their life force, their energy, however you want to term it, was being literally drained from them. And um, and I found over the last few years, I get way more reports today than I did, say, five or six, ten years ago, when I did still get them, but they would be very rare. And um, so I thought, you know, why not put uh, all the data together that I've got now on this subject? Because in a, in a weird way, it seems to be like a growing phenomenon even. Right. Well, one thing that I wanted to say is I, I loved the the cover because the creepy black eyed children holding a doll. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there must be somebody pretty warped at the publisher, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> now did you have final say? I did I did do a good cover. Yeah. 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 Um now one thing that I've thought about um doing Paratruth Radio and having that Christian background for that show, the one thing that I thought of was what we think of as demons is a, is a paranormal parasite. Because even though people claim to be possessed and whatnot, a lot of times people that are oppressed or what have you from these, these creatures are doing or having those same symptoms of being drained and feeling almost yeah. depressed and whatnot. So that's something that kind of I've I've thought about a lot. Mm. Well, yeah, and I think I think certainly for the witnesses as well. I mean, they sort of think about it a lot as well because it's not just an encounter; it's something that has had kind of like a, a physical effect upon them. And I think you know that it's almost like a like a violation of your privacy. You know, something um, turns up and then you start to get sick and ill, and you feel like you're life's been sucked out of you but also you know this i i guess the disturbing angle of like the realization as some people have said it that they, they were being fed on you know as as people we don't ne- uh, normally think about us being fed upon you know it's right. uh it's usually the other way around and i think it's like for some people it's like a calling card like a wake-up card that wow you know there are potentially things out there which are far more dangerous and powerful than us and which view us in the same way that you go to your local store for a, I don't know, pack of sausages or something, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. <laughs> in simple terms. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing that I uh, was thinking about reading the book too, because you included uh, ghosts in it. And the one thing that um, some paranormal investigators report is that just like I was saying with demons, spirits, what, whatever they are, are somehow draining us. I mean, they, they talk about the draining of the equipment, too, but there are people that have adverse effect with ghosts, too. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the book's called Paranormal Parasites, but the, the, the entities themselves, they are the multiple different types. So the book... Basically, you know, has different chapters on, on different types of parasitic creatures. But I mean, one of the more interesting ones when you're talking about ghosts is the issue of what are known of, as hungry ghosts. Now, it's not really uh, a concept that's known too well in the West, but certainly in the Far East and India, um, the, the hungry ghost is like, um, you know, a, a classic kind of bogeyman type thing. Mm, yeah. And it's very much sort of tied to the issues of karma 
in other ways, in other ways, um, you know, the way we live our lives on this physical plane now may have some sort of bearing upon how we exist in the next life. And the hungry ghost phenomenon, it's called that because essentially um, this aspect of the afterlife, so to speak, the theory is or that the concept is that people who um, sort of don't live a good life in this particular life find themselves constantly in search of food, but which always eludes them for whatever kind of reason. And uh, so they're in this constant state of starvation with, you know, food just in front of them, but they can barely reach it. And, um, you know, a lot of it does kind of sound a little bit, you know, sort of folkloric, but it's an interesting, in, intriguing phenomenon which goes back many, many centuries. And I said, um, it's sort of a big concept within India, the Far East, particularly in, with um, the Sikh religion. And... Um, the idea that they're constantly trying to feed upon us, um, but they're just not able to, unlike some of the other ones I talk about in the book. So the, the, the hungry ghost is almost like, you know, you, you get what you ask for. You, you know, you didn't live as you should have done. And so you're cursed forever to, to have this sort of state of constant literal starvation, which you're never able to, um, to combat it, you know. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, Buddhism and and their wheel of life in the hell realm. The the spirits are hungry spirits, ravenous spirits. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, there's you know, it's like one person calls it this, somebody else calls it that. Right. But like a lot of these things, and even though the appearances are very different, you, it does come down to this core angle of um, manipulation and sort of. Um, and a, and a predatory kind of situation. Um, you know, one person's demon is another person's multi-dimensional creature, that kind of thing. Right. Now, the I, I was fascinated by the different creatures that have ended up in the book, and the one thing that uh, I found most fascinating is that there are cases of uh, people that come across Bigfoots that are having these leeching-type effects what was going on with that like what were people reporting well this kind of relates to what's known as the lover's lane phenomenon now you know all around the world um you can find places which probably not you know the, the term is probably a little bit antiquated now but you know you go back sort of the 70s 60s and 50s i right. guess every little town had its lover's lane uh, area you know where every friday saturday night the kids would go out and uh sit in the car and do what kids have always done in cars, you know, on a Friday and Saturday night. Um, And hence the term Lover's Lane locations. But what's intriguing is that in many locations uh, where these Lover's Lane places um, have a, you know, a history, there have been reports of strange creatures attached to them, particularly Bigfoot-type animals where... You know, couples are in the car, in the woods, it's like 11 o'clock at night, and suddenly this hair-covered, huge humanoid figure looms into view and, you know, terrifies the pair because it's sort of literally staring at them through the windows, and it looks like, you know, something twice the size of a gorilla, menacing, dangerous. And uh, and also in those situations, you have people who've said they felt um, like a sudden 
sense of, of just weakness and, you know, have a sense of not being able to fight this thing off. Now, what's particularly intriguing about this is that there are a number of cases like this in the UK, where I'm originally from, but there's no way in a country that that's small that you could have a colony of flesh and blood Bigfoot type creatures roaming around the UK. It's just not possible, you know. But people have reported that exact thing in UK equivalents of Lover's Lanes over here. Um, you know, Saturday night again, Friday night, hanging out in the woods, and suddenly the creature appears. And it has this um, sort of very negative effect, physical effect, on the witnesses. So, um, you know, this leads me to believe that the Bigfoot creatures are not just unknown apes. They're not just the U.S. equivalent of, um, you know, like uh, like mountain gorillas in Africa. Mm-hmm. There's something weirder going on with Bigfoot, I think, which somehow also ties upon, um, you know, this ash- this issue of um, of Lovers Lane, the concept of. Um, you know, these entities turning up. And then the big question, of course, is, well, why do they turn up then? Well, one of the big um, issues, of course, relates to um, people being in high states of emotion or high states of energy when these entities turn up. And, of course, you know, one of the highest states uh, of energy, whether mental energy, physical energy, both, is like a sexual state. So, when you look at it from the perspective of these things being parasitic and feeding on high states of human emotion, well, you know, the, the sexual emotions are among the highest. So, in other words, it would make a specific sense that these creatures would essentially wait, um, you know, in a kind of a lair-type situation and then pounce. And so I think we're looking at things that are, in a strange way, feeding on us but they'll feed on uh, feed on us in any way possible and potentially possible. Um, they're just looking for that energy fix, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Well, one thing that I had thought about, and um, it's been years since I've talked about it, is uh, like psychic vampires. Now, granted, they're not creatures; they're yeah. people. But uh, you know, there there are those people that walk into the room and you almost feel the energy drain out of the room. Um, did you do some research into that for the book, too? I, I mentioned it a bit, but the only reason I didn't go into it too deeply was because I was trying to focus on, you know, strange, monstrous type entities rather than the average person. But you, uh, but I do include that. And I mean, I think all of us have met someone or know someone where, you know, you haven't seen him for a few months or whatever, and you run into them and it's, hey, those things going, oh, you're not going to believe what's happened. You know, the ABC happened, XYZ happened. And after like 20 minutes of that, you really do feel wiped out and your energy has gone. And, you know, that's not a malevolent, deliberate thing. It's just that, you know, negativity kind of provokes negativity, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and I think that's why you have people who are known as, like psychic vampires. They're not deliberately malevolent and trying to harm you. But by the same token, when you're with them, you're just listening to 20 minutes of, oh, this happened, you know, and that happened. Yeah. Uh, it really does take its toll. And I actually don't think it is just psychological. I think there's something to this idea that whether you call it, you know, your, your energy force, your life force, 
your soul. I think these entities have some way of sort of feeding on our energies in ways we don't fully understand. Now, okay, but occasionally people like these psychic vampires unknowingly um, provoke that kind of situation as well. Now, doing the, the research on the different creatures that you came across, was there anything that uh, struck you as odd that it was an energy zapping type uh, experience? Um, I wouldn't say it was one that, that really sort of surprised me, but one of the things that did um, or has um, sort of surprised some of the readers who provided feedback is the issue of the men in black. Now, you know, most people, they think of them, the Men in Black, they think of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, right. you know, movies, the Men in Black movies, which were sort of phenomenally um, successful all around the world. I mean, literally everywhere. And even if you're not into the UFO subject, you could say to people, who are the Men in Black? And they say, oh, yeah, they're those spies who silence people and whatever. Right. Yeah. Which is the way they are. But what a lot of people is that image of like the, the quote secret agents angle was was created by Hollywood or was that actually I should say was sort of um, um, expanded upon by Hollywood but if you speak to the vast majority of all the witnesses to the men in black a good 97 98 percent don't talk about anything that sounds like someone who's coming out of the Pentagon or the Department of Defense they're typically described as very pale and gaunt looking Sometimes short, but other times sort of very tall and skinny, even to the point of looking emaciated and anemic, and often reported as having these uh, large eyes, which bulging eyes, which they hide behind wraparound glasses. And when they come to people's homes, they seem to have this ability, uh, like a psychic ability to control people's um, mind so to speak of course you know if you get a knock on the door late at night say 10 or 11 at night and there's two or three guys in black suits black fedoras etc you're probably not going to let them in you know but people do and with hindsight they say they they just don't know how or why they allowed them in but they did let them come in and then you know the threat etc etc begins but there are a lot of cases where people find themselves on the couch at 11 o'clock at night with these two or three skinny pale guys in black suits staring at them and then suddenly the witnesses feel like they're starting to crash. Uh, one witness described it as if like a, um, like a diabetic person, you know, if they'd missed breakfast, missed lunch, mm -hmm. and then it's 9 o'clock at night and they start to get the shakes and they've just, they've just got to eat something, anything, you know. That's how... Um, that kind of analogy is in, in several ways has been used by a number of people. The idea of they just felt like their entire body was crashing and it was crashing when the men in black were just intently staring at them and they felt their energy was leaving their body. Uh, they had the shakes. And they started to hyperventilate and they felt they couldn't even get off the couch to fight back. Now, cases like that, you know, when you sort of talk about the surprising angle, um, cases like that do surprise a lot of people because you have this uh, sort of far more down-to-earth explanation for the men in black, where most people don't realize that the real men in black are much different. They're all, they are almost like predatory vampire-type creatures that seem as, as, in, as 
dedicated, if you like, to getting your energy and draining you as they are as terrifying you. And I sometimes think that the the when they you know they they do frighten people and terrify people, but I think that's kind of a ruse. What I think is going on is not so much the angle of threatening people to silence them. I think the threat is created to to create the fear. And then the bigger level of fear in the person, the higher level of emotion and energy there is to feed on. Now, in your opinion, are a lot of these creatures feeding off of the the fear that that energy is creating? Yes, I think that's exactly what's going on. You know, because people often say, "Well, why do the men in black? Why, why are the men in black so intent on terrorizing people?" Well, if you terrorize someone, you know, you've got adrenaline and fear chemicals and everything else running around your body. Now, if in some strange way they're able to quite literally feed upon us, well, the best thing from their perspective is to get as much energy as possible. So, you know, if you can create as much fear as possible in the person, you're going to increase the levels of energy to feed on. So, so I think that's the whole purpose of creating the fear. It's not actually to silence the person. It's to ter- terrify them into becoming, in essence, like a bigger meal. You know, the, the bigger the terror, the bigger the meal. And I, I loved the different creatures in the book because, I mean, it goes from, you know, Bigfoot all the way to the vampires and Chupacabra. Um, you know, you talked about the the men in black and you've also got the black-eyed kids in here. And a lot of people associate the black-eyed kids with the men in black because they're sometimes seen together. They have that similar aspect. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you, as far as I have heard, there hasn't been as many cases of people inviting the black-eyed kids in as it has been the men in black. Is that true? Yeah, that is. There's actually only a handful of cases, or at least a handful of cases on record, at least, uh, where people have invited the black-eyed children into the home. Now, for people who don't know, um, the black-eyed children phenomenon, publicly at least, began in the late 1990s with a Texan journalist named Brian Bethel, who saw two of these creepy-looking kids late one night. And his story went online, and then other people came forward with their accounts. But they're called the black-eyed kids, or black-eyed children, because they have solid black eyes, the entire eye is black, like a classic alien grey, you know, from mm-hmm. ufology. Right. And their skin is usually, if not almost always, described as being not just smooth, but sort of too smooth, like plastic almost. And their skin is sort of, when I say white, I'm talking about like sometimes like the, the colour of a sheet of paper, that kind of white. And um, like the men in black, they typically wear black, whereas the men in black, it's a black suit, and an old-style black fedora with their black-eyed children, it's typically a black hoodie, which they sort of pull down over their eyes, or at least as close to their eyes as they can, and they very often sort of just look at the ground. Um, They knock on the door, and people open the door, or feel compelled to open the door, and they see these two kids who don't force their way in ever, but they try and find a way to get an invitation inside. We're homeless. We're hungry. We don't know where we are. We've lost our parents. Can we come in? 
So they try and put the the ball in the court, so to speak, of the of the victims, the people in the homes. And of course, this angle of not coming into the home until they're invited is very much like the old vampire legends. Where, of course, the vampires were known for not draining us of energy, but of blood. Right. Um, they have this situation where the black-eyed children, very sort of creepily and, and in a manipulative fashion, would try and find a way, and still do try to find ways, to get an invite uh, into the home. Now, the number of cases where people have said they have entered the home is actually very small. For the most part, people look at them, feel intimidated and terrified, and they kind of manage to, to summon up enough energy or to break this sort of hypnotic spell to slam the door and leave, uh, leave them outside. Um, but in the few cases where they've got into the home, it's been very much like the men in black situation where they sort of stagger back into the room on the couch and you have these two sinister-looking young kids. Typically, they're described as being anywhere between 10 and about 13. And interestingly enough, there, don't, there aren't really anybody or isn't anybody who said, you know, they look six or seven or they look 15 or 16. Most people say anywhere between sort of about 10 and 13. And that's when they too, like as with the men in black, they suddenly feel weak, their energy is going, and they actually feel, you know, these, the entities themselves, the black-eyed kids, are in essence um, draining them of their energy. And, um, and that seems to be the whole point of what they're trying to do. But whether it's because, you know, they're, they're younger, or, I mean, or maybe they're not, you know, maybe it's just a ruse the way they look. But what I can say is that far less people um, have the ability to fight off the men in black as they do the black-eyed children. A lot of people have said they've managed to break that hypnotic spell before they even got in the house. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who've seen the men in black felt they were just, totally being controlled they just could not fight it off you know now do you think that the the men in black are like almost like a more mature version of the 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 black well, kids or that manipulation is a little bit more prominent uh well i, I often get asked, asked that question you know it, sometimes it's simplified down as well because there's a lot of stories of women in black as well right. you know people say well is it the mom and dad and the children <laughs> you know i don't think it's quite that simple you know sort of um, this sort of fun family of like um, predatory things oh the kid we'll send the kids out tonight now we'll send mom out <laughs> you know i don't think it's quite like that but what i do think and this is also based upon some of the witnesses reports is that i think all of these things could actually be the same thing possibly taking on different guises and appearances, almost like a shape-shifting phenomenon for different people. Because there are some cases where people have said, there are only a few, where they've said they've seen the black-eyed children sort of morph into other forms, one of them like a a reptilian-type creature, which is another aspect of ufology. Mm. Um, There are other cases where people have seen the men in black when they've sort of morphed and shimmered as if they were changing form. And I actually have two really bizarre stories, extremely bizarre stories, where the witnesses in different parts of the United States and across decades from from each story, um, they saw the the man in black sort of alter into like a large black dog with like these fiery blazing eyes, which is sort of um, 
like a remnant almost of what in England are known as the Phantom Black Dogs, which mm-hmm. has a long history in the UK, and it actually provoked Arthur Conan Doyle to write his novel, his Sherlock Holmes novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles. He actually based um, his his novel on these pre-existing stories in the UK of these phantom black dogs, as they were known. And um, and they sound very much like, like what the, the people who saw the men in black and then saw them subsequently morph into a different shape, even a different animal. You know, cases like that are few and far between, but there are a few. So to get back to your question, I think there's a possibility that these things take on different appearances at different times and for different cultures and for different uh, people. And I sometimes wonder if we've actually ever seen them in their real form. You know, maybe the men in black form, the women in black, the black-eyed kids, the hungry ghost, um, the Bigfoot. You know, they're all tied in with the angle of energy draining. But maybe, you know, it's a case of, be careful of what you ask for, you know, whatever's the, you're the worst nightmare in your head. Maybe that has a bearing on how the entity appears for you or for me or anybody else. You know. Well, that kind of brings up a good question for me is like people that go through sleep paralysis and then they have the, uh, the dark figure in the room and everything. And sometimes they report seeing other things uh, when, when they're not asleep and not in the sleep paralysis state, like the, the UFO sightings or uh, ghosts and stuff like that. Um, you know, a lot of people that go through that sleep paralysis will have that same effect where they're, they're drained. And I mean, yeah, you, you factor in the, the losing sleep thing, but is it something that could be draining them where mm. they can't move their body and, and their mind just snaps awake, you know? Yeah, well, there's, for the most part, and again, I talk about this in the book, there's two categories that, you know, sort of fall into this um, angle of, you know, waking up in the early hours of the morning, usually between about 1.30 and about 4.30. It's it's seldom before that and it's seldom after that. It's sort of, you know, when you're in a really deep Mm -hmm. sleep state of the early hours of the morning. And people talk about seeing predominantly two types of entities, one which is known as the shadow people, which are, imagine like an intelligent, self-independent shadow was intelligence, you know, that was free of the person creating the shadow. Mm -hmm. That's what people describe, you know, if you imagine you're watching TV and you suddenly see this humanoid shadow, you know, ingrained against the wall, that kind of thing. And then the other one is a similar one, which again, it's a humanoid shadow but it's become known as the hat man where it's a silhouetted shadow but it wears like an old 50s style fedora hat but the but there's this other category of the shadow people that you know they they don't have the hat so that's why you've got the original shadow people angle and then you've got this somewhat newer one of the hat man but both of them seem to do the same thing you wake up sort of 1 30 2 a.m 3 a.m and you find yourself unable to move. You're either semi-paralyzed or completely paralyzed and can barely move your eyes. And you get this sensation of fear and dread that something is sort of coming towards the bedroom, along the corridor, the hallway, whatever. Or it's already in the room. And because you're in this um, 
paralyzed state, which is known as sleep paralysis, um, the, you have nothing to essentially fight it off. And the closer the thing gets, the more and more terrifying it is for the person. And on top of that, the more and more difficult it becomes for the person to fight back. In other words, they're getting weaker and weaker and more and more terrified. And a lot of people who've had the shadow people and the Hatman experiences have woken up the next day just sort of drenched in sweat. You know, they have no energy. They're just, they feel literally worn out and exhausted. Uh, and all they can think of is that sort of terrible nightmare. And, but maybe it wasn't just a nightmare. And, you know, one of the point, things I always point out, well, if these are just nightmares, why is it that so many people report the the silhouetted shadow figure as wearing an old 1950s hat? You know, if it was just subconscious doing this, why wouldn't we be picking up images that we see all around us today? You know, um, beanies, you know, as one, or, a, or a woolly hat, you know, in the winter, that kind of thing. Why is it so many people are describing a hat from 50 or 60 years ago when maybe they weren't even uh, born then? So, you know, I think there's some interesting aspects there that's suggesting that the shadow people, the hat man, that they're all kind of connected. And, and in some respects, the, the hat man is actually very similar to the men in black, whereas the men in black seem and appear solid and physical and the shadow people and the hat man sound sort of, um, you know, like a shadow without any real substance. The important thing is that both the men in black and the hat man both wear the, the old fedoras. So I don't think that's a coincidence. I think somehow there's a connection between the two, even though, you know, we haven't really figured out what that connection is. Do you think it's that, that same... Uh trickster morphing effect like the other creatures that you've been talking about too? Yeah, I actually do. I think, you know, there are certain prototypes, if you like, and archetypes that uh, they seem to take on the same um, things time and time again. Men in black, women in black, black-eyed kids, Bigfoot, um, hungry ghosts, shadow people, hat man. Um, those seem to be the primary ones that people talk about when it comes to this issue of energy draining. Now, you know, I mentioned a couple of times earlier that the women in black, um, and they're very much like the men in black as well. They sort of have very pale skin. They're often described as having long black wigs, which sort of come down to their eyes and their eyebrows and sort of folding on the face, almost in like a bang style. So, you know, you're not really able to see the face too much. And, um, and they often turn up on people's doorsteps. Uh, there was a, a spate of them back in 1960s at Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when the Mothman sightings were going on. And people were seeing these creepy, not just men in black, but women in black. And the women in black often pretended to be census takers or they were doing a survey in the area. Can we come in? People let them in. And then you have the same process again. So it's, I don't, I'm not saying, or I don't say that, they're limited to taking on just certain forms, but they seem to prefer to take on certain forms. And I think most of the ones they seem to take the form of sort of integrate with us and pass among us. Like, for example, the men in black and women in black and the black-eyed kids. If you didn't see them too close 
up close and personal, you might not realize you're saying something supernatural, you know? Right. Well, the, something that I found uh, in the book that you had brought up is aliens and abductions. Now, I mean, a lot of people will claim fatigue or feeling ill or stuff like that after alien abductions. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, if they are truly being abducted, for one, what what would be causing that either very ill or or draining effect for that? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of aspects to the alien abduction angle of all this. I mean, that's a good point you make when you say, you know, are they really being abducted? Because like with the, um, the shadow people and the hat man, most alien abduction experiences occur in the dead of night. Now, people honestly and truthfully do feel that they're being taken from the bed to some, you know, sort of a strange place, a strange domain or in the inside of a UFO where it's all lit up. Right. And then there are these weird little creatures standing around them known as the greys, um, large heads, huge black eyes, kind of inset looking and about three to four feet tall. They're sort of known as the greys and they're the ones typically shown in relation to alien abduction stories. But, I mean, when you read some of these um, alien abduction stories, it's almost as if, or like their their soul, if you like, or their essence has been extracted from the body and taken to the UFO rather than, you know, a physical abduction where the aliens have to open the doors, you know, and beam them up and take them to the craft. A lot of them seem far more based around the idea of almost like a supernatural part of us is extracted and taken to the craft. Now, this gets into really controversial areas because a number of people who claim to have had the abduction experience have said that when they were on the craft that their soul and their body were sort of separated and they could see their body on a table with the gray standing around them not unlike you know when somebody has like a near-death experience you know somebody has a heart attack and they race into the hospital and bring them back but during that process, you know, the, the witnesses claim that they were sort of hovering over the operating room and seeing the, you know, their body just being worked on. And that's what some witnesses have said they felt the abduction was like. It didn't feel how you might expect it, you know, being forcibly dragged out of your bedroom and carried through the front door, you know, and then taken up steps into a, you know, stepladder into, into a craft. It was a lot like that. It was more dreamlike and more of, a, of an out-of-body situation. And, um, and some researchers have said that when they interviewed the abductees, they actually felt that these entities were quite literally trying to steal our souls or, or at least like a kind of a, a soul energy or a life force energy, um, but pretending or taking on the guise of being malevolent and friendly. You know, it's for your own help. We're here to help you. Don't worry when in reality, they suspect it's more along the lines of, of, again, something that is recharging itself using our energies. And um, and some of the witnesses have actually said they, they felt that that energy was was their soul. They felt it was, they were like soul stealers almost. Now, I, that kind of reminds me of a book I read years ago by Nigel Kerner, Great Aliens and the Harvesting of Souls. And he had, spe- oh, yeah. yeah, he had speculated that they're trying to not necessarily suck our souls out or, or 
at least not use it as energy, but try to uh, figure out what a soul is and somehow yeah. harvest it so that they themselves can have souls because they don't know what it is. Almost like uh, how a lot of people are saying that we are being genetically um, spliced with aliens or, you know, the, the people that get abducted who say that, you know, I, I became pregnant on the ship, was brought down, and then the baby was taken away. That sort of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that's sort of a, also a very disturbing angle, you know, because most people who have the abduction experience, they, they often feel like a, an affinity and a connection to the greys. Um, almost like what's known as Stockholm Syndrome, where people are kidnapped, you know, and um, held for ransom, and then they kind of gravitate towards the 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 the, uh, the kidnappers or the hijackers or whatever. Right. They feel this connection in a very odd way. Now, so it's kind of like that. But yeah, the Nigel's books are really people haven't read Nigel Kerner's book books. So he's done two now, um, but. Yeah, I mean, Nigel's theory is an interesting one, but a very disturbing one. The idea that the greys could be some sort of like biological robots, like worker drones, rather than living entities like us. They're sort of fabricated or created. And as in, in Nigel's theories, the idea that we have eternal souls, even if we don't really understand what it is in the physical life, mm. um, but that we have sort of eternal souls, but as they're like a biological creation, they have nothing like that, but they're desperate to try and understand what the immortal soul is. And if possibly using their own bizarre form of science, can they somehow utilize our souls and blend them with ours? And find a way so that they will have a degree or some sort of immortality that they desperately want and understand that we have. Um, and if that is the case, you know, it might explain why this ongoing meddling with the human race in relation to reproduction and why also, um, you know, people have talked about um, seeing themselves outside of the body on craft. You know, if these things are making some um, headway from their perspective and they're starting to understand the nature of the soul and how to use it, that might explain why we're seeing more of these cases of people saying, you know, it seems to be focusing on my soul or I was, you know, in a near-death experience kind of floating around. You know, it's, um, it does kind of suggest some kind of connection between the gray aliens and the human soul, even if we're not seeing the full picture yet. Now, one creature that I, I was thinking about, cause I actually just heard a, a podcast on it is uh, Loch Ness monster. Have you heard any cases of people feeling drained or sick or anything like that after encounters with the Loch Ness monster? Um, not so much felt, um, you know, sort of wiped out. But, I mean, there are a lot of... I wrote a book a couple of years ago just called Nessie, which was a, a study of the whole supernatural aspect of the Loch Ness Monster phenomenon. You know, forget about plesiosaurs and dinosaurs, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. But a lot of researchers who dug into the Loch Ness Monster mystery and who thought they were actually, you know, going to hopefully find something like a plesiosaur or a new form of, like, 40-foot-long eel or whatever... 
found themselves having a lot of really weird synchronicities and strange things happening. For example, Alistair Crowley, the famous occultist, he had a house at um, Loch Ness for the best part of a decade called mm-hmm. Boleskine House, which burned down a few years ago. Um, and a lot of witch covens and um, stories of um, like snake um, snake goddesses being worshipped in the area with uh, these sort of mysterious cults. Now, one of the people who dug really into this deeply was a guy named Ted Holliday. Ted Holliday wrote a number of good books on the Loch Ness Monster. He began as someone who started out thinking these animals were animals, but just unknown types or surviving relics from, you know, millions of years ago. But he found to his concern that um, instead he came to realize these creatures seem to be far more supernatural than flesh and blood. And uh, in 1973, he actually took, play, uh, took uh, place in um, uh, an exorcism at Loch Ness to try and drive these creatures out of Loch Ness. And um, Ted Holliday also had a weird encounter with a black um, dog on one occasion and also uh, with a man in black at Loch Ness, this sort of malevolent-looking figure that was staring at him from... Uh, like about a, uh, a couple of hundred feet from where he was standing down by the shore. And eventually, Ted Holliday walked away from this whole subject because he came to realize that the phenomenon wasn't just manifesting in odd ways. It was targeting him, and it seemed to target other researchers, you know, manipulating them. And although he didn't report this angle of feeling weak, etc., the, when he saw this man in black in 73, literally uh, a year to the day, so the following year, um, he actually had a very serious heart attack on the very spot where the man in black was seen the previous year. So, in other words, it, it did have a deep adverse effect on, on his health, his physical health and his psychological health. And he actually died young. He died while he was still in his late 50s. And... Um, a lot of researchers who follow the paranormal side of the Loch Ness Monster story think that um, Ted Holliday had somehow tapped into all this and basically hit back at him. Hmm. Now, do you feel that that the like the adverse effects, like people having heart attacks and, and physical ailments and whatnot, are somehow a result of of the creatures feeding on us? through energy or even like the, the blood suckers that we think of as vampires and chupacabra and that sort of thing? Well, I mean, it's difficult to say really just in mainly because, you know, I mean, some cases I think, well, some of the cases I talk about in the book where people um, claim that having had these paranormal encounters and, you know, feeling drained, some of them, you know, uh, when they were taken to hospital or the doctors, they were found to have sort of sick, acute um, severe anemia you know their blood counts were down and they were dangerously ill so I think in some cases you know we can make a case that there are physical effects now Ted Holliday he was by his own admittance and by his writings you know he was someone who was very paranoid um, he was you know he, it's almost as if he had like a an ongoing case of like um post-traumatic stress you know he would find himself in a lot of stressful situations which would hang over him from a long time and of course you know people who 
do live in in states like that, you know, things like post-traumatic stress, um, it is going to have a physical effect on you. It is going to grind you down. So I think in some cases, you know, you could make a case that it's being done by the entities, but also just the effects of the person being plunged into constant states of stress, well, your body's going to make as bad a case as well, you know, in terms of it affecting you, I think, rather than just the entities themselves. You know, you're constantly pumping out adrenaline every day and, you know, something goes wrong and something else goes bad and, you know, the human body cannot or isn't meant to live like that. That's why people have heart attacks and ulcers, you know. Um, Some 60-year-old businessman, you know, has a fatal heart attack, fatal ulcer, that kind of thing. Um, So I think sometimes you can apply it to these entities. Sometimes it's the effect of what they do to us, and then our bodies and our mind makes it even worse, you know. Right, or it's even exacerbating a a condition that you already have, like people that have, uh, you know, diabetes or have heart problems before they have these encounters. Yeah, and when when in that sort of case, you're going to be vulnerable to start with, you know, and, uh, you know, sort of elevated sugar levels through, you know, adrenaline and and things like that. And then, you you know, your your body tries to compensate, so your blood's up and down, you know, and... um, so, yeah, I think, you know, there's, it's probably a bit of both. But unfortunately, sometimes we make it worse, even though we don't mean to. You know. Now, do you think that there is a almost a human factor to this where we, are, whether we're having these, these encounters or if it's something that's in our mind, do you think if it isn't in our mind that we are causing that same effect without it being something feeding on us? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, this sort of ties in, to a degree at least, with the the idea of thought forms and tulpas. Mm. Uh, For people who don't know what they mean, um, it's basically the idea of the human mind creating something or thinking about something and thousands of people thinking about it and then suddenly people see it in the real world. It's as if the human mind has the ability to project outwardly something which is been created within the imagination, but belief in it becomes so deep and so strong that we can externalize it and it breaks free of the the human imagination and the human mind and takes on its own independent supernatural life force, if you like. That may explain um, why so many people see today the Slender Man which now the Slender Man was absolutely created in 2009 as part of like a, like a contest to see who could come up with the creepiest creepy creature right. for the uh, the modern era. You know, like a, an internet version of Michael Myers. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, mixed with Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. You know, right. and um, and what we had was the the Slender Man. But we know the Slender Man was a creation for the internet. But people um, in numerous occasions now reported seeing the Slender Man in their bedroom, in their home, in the lurking in the nearby woods, and they were absolutely sure what they saw is what people described the Slender Man as looking like, you know, in the artwork that people have done that you can find on the Internet. So I think we could make a case that, 
you know, particularly with a Slender Man, which fascinates kids and teenagers, if you've got thousands and thousands of kids fixating on this image and then it becomes externalized, it becomes self-aware and it breaks free of, it, of the imagination, then we are inadvertently creating something that ironically never existed until we created it. So I think there could be something to that, that the more we focus on these things, perhaps somehow they get stronger just by, as a result of our belief in them. And the, the stronger the belief, the stronger they get, and the stronger they get, the, sh the more capable they are of feeding. And, and it's like a spiral, you know. Mm, right. All right, Nick, we are getting close to the end of the show, so I will give the mic to you to tell everybody where they can find you, find the book, and all that good stuff. All right, well, thanks. Well, the book's called Paranormal Parasites, and it's published by Llewellyn Books. And um, you can get it, like most of my books, you can get it off Amazon. And like about two-thirds of my books, you can also buy it off um, Barnes & Noble, off the shelves in Barnes & Noble. And um, people want to contact me, um, they can reach me at um, Facebook or Nick Redfern, uh, excuse me, at, at um at Twitter at Nick Redfern UFO, and I also have a blog uh, called World of Whatever where people can reach me as well. All right, Nick. Thank you so much for being on Beyond Reason once again. All right. Well, thanks, Justin. All right, folks. That was Nick Redfern, and we were talking about his book, Paranormal Parasites, The Voracious Appetites of Soul-Sucking Supernatural Entities. A lot of different things brought up during the conversation, and I think it's kind of pertinent today with the different experiences that people are having. And, you know, there's always different reports that these people have. And I'm, I'm glad Nick was able to find a uh, link to these different entities and uh, the, the experiences of people feeling drained, feeling ill, uh, you know, people report of, sometimes vomiting and that sort of thing during these experiences. So I, I think it's a really interesting book and I think you guys should check it out. I highly recommend all of Nick's books, including this one. And I check Nick out. He, as he said, he's got his blog and he's got, he does numerous, numerous articles as well for different magazines. And I, I truly enjoy having Nick on. So that's all I've got for you guys this week. Make sure you're checking out beyondreason.net. That's usually where I post the shows. Uh, you can also find me on Libsyn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes. Uh, you can find me on YouTube under Conflict Radio. Uh, and uh, anywhere great podcasts are heard, you can find my show. And I would truly love it if you guys left a review on iTunes, if you guys left comments for me, uh, if you go on beyondreason.net, you can comment on, on any of the shows right there on the website. And I do get notifications of them, and I would love to hear from you guys. And there is also a contact page there. Uh, and Or you can just do uh, an email at justin at beyondreason.net. So until next week, folks, keep those minds open. This is Justin Kensler signing off. Nancy, 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 Nancy,
CW brings you the highly anticipated mystery series. We got a lot of stories. Finding missing kids, solving cases when the cops couldn't. I believe in looking for the truth. From the network that brought you Riverdale. <laughs> you saw a ghost. Dead Lucy. People say she still haunts our town. Nancy Drew, series premiere following the season premiere of Riverdale, tonight on The CW. Nancy Drew, tonight at 9 p.m., only on DCW 50, Washington CW. It's cutting into your exercise time. It's stabbing you in the back nine. And it's attacking your peace of mind. It's pain, and it's getting in between you and the life you want to live. CBD Medic targets your pain at its source. It's fast-acting relief with active OTC ingredients, plus the added benefits of THC-free hemp oil. Get back to your life with CBD Medic, available online and at CVS. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.